Welcome to episode 79 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Falling down for you. There's nothing in this world I wouldn't do. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. Welcome. Here we are. We are. Back Welcome at back. it again. Oh, man. It's like we take a week off from podcasting together, and we don't know what we're doing anymore. I know. I really just want to reach out and hug you. I'm not going to lie. I'm glad that you're back. I had a good time with Todd. Everyone should go listen to it, but it's good to have you back, brother. For sure. It's good to be back and it's good to hear your voice. And I'm really excited to hear what you're affirming and denying this week. So this is a, a sort of a longer affirmation. So I'm going to try to boil it down. But what I'm, what I'm affirming, that's true. This is our podcast. We take as long as we want. Um, what I'm affirming is... Have you ever had this experience where you're maybe you're in Bible? I, this was in Bible study for me, but maybe you're reading the scripture and all of a sudden something jumps out at you that you had not noticed before and it like really gets you excited. Yeah, for sure. So let me just lay a little bit of foundation. I'm going to try to go through this quick because um, we have a good topic tonight. But we are in Bible study and we're studying Joshua. And we came on Joshua 9, which is the account of the Gibeonite deception, is usually what it's called in various um like headings the editorial headings and it comes right after the israelites had um broken covenant with god um in the affair of jake of achan where he takes the devoted things and then they lose to ai and they have to execute um, achan and his family and so they go through this covenant ratification ceremony where they go back to um mount ebal and gerizim and they reaffirm the covenant and then they go and they have this incident with the Gibeonites where the Gibeonites put on old clothes and they come and they pretend like they came from a long way away. And they make right. this covenant with the, the leaders of Israel. Sneaky. Yeah, it was super sneaky. And then the leaders of Israel, somehow it comes to the Israelites' attention that um, the Gibeonites had made this deceptive covenant. And so all the people of Israel, they rush to Gibeon, which is not very far from where they were camped. but. They all rush there on the same day they hear it. And this is what struck me is uh, towards the end, Joshua, he calls the Gibeonites. And I'm going to just read quick in uh, verse 922. He says, why have you deceived us saying we were very far from you when you dwell among us? Now, therefore, you are cursed and some of you shall never be anything but servants, cutters of wood and drawers of water for the house of my God. So what's really interesting to me, and this is what jumped out at me is um, we come off of the Israelites breaking covenant with God. There's consequences. And then God reaffirms the covenant. So God graciously extends himself to allow them to reaffirm the covenant. He could have destroyed the whole nation, but instead he just allows them to punish Achan and his family. And then he reaffirms the covenant. Joshua comes to the Gibeonites who he had just made a covenant with. And in some senses, he's saying, you have already broken covenant with us by deceiving us. And so that's where he says, now you are cursed. But then Joshua takes another step and he graciously sort of makes a new covenant or he kind of extends the covenant and he further like defines what the covenant terms would be. So then he says, you're cursed. But then he says, this is where it gets really interesting. At the end here, um, let me find it. It says that Joshua delivered the Gibeonites out of the hands of Israel. Yeah, verse 26. So he did this to them. And this is by kind of issuing them a new role in the the people of Israel. They never become Israelites, but they kind of assume this role in Israelite society. He says he did this to them and delivered them, delivered them out of the hands of the people of Israel, and they did not kill them. And then everywhere else that the Gibeonites appear in scripture after that, they're in sort of this covenant faithful position, right? When they're rebuilding the walls in Nehemiah, the Gibeonites are there helping them rebuild the walls. When Saul kills a bunch of Gibeonites, they come to David and David says, what do you want me to do for you? And they go, well, this isn't about silver or gold and we don't have any right to kill anybody. So throughout scripture, the Gibeonites are painted in this picture as kind of faithful covenant servants to Israel. So there's this, I recognize this typology where Joshua, which happens to be the same name as Jesus, is extending his grace and he delivers these covenant breakers out of the hands of the Israelites and issues a new covenant to them. So it was just like this moment in Bible study where it was like, boom! Straight Um, Easter egg. Yeah, so some of this is a little speculative, and I need to dig into it a little bit more, but it doesn't appear as though Joshua is wringing his hands, going like, I'd really love to kill them, but 
I've got right. this covenant with them, which is kind of how it normally is painted. Like it's painted as like the only thing restraining the Israelites is Joshua. And then in the very next chapter after this, um, the, the Jebusites come to attack the Gibeonites and Joshua and all of Israel comes to defend the Gibeonites. So it's this beautiful picture of the covenant making between Israel and Gibeon that just is really, I think, a lot more pregnant than we give it we give it um, credence to. So I was just like all jacked up and stoked up about this because it was heavy. just it was like Jesus just jumped off the page in a way that he never has in this account for me. That's heavy. It's almost yeah. like there's a grand story arc in this Bible. Thing. Yeah, it's crazy. It's almost like Joshua is a type of Jesus. <laughs> but but isn't it true that how many times can you read or even study a passage before the spirit kind of just knocks you on the ground with something awesome like that? Exactly. Yeah. And, and, and you know, it's not like I've read it in a study note Bible. Not all actually the study notes were all like, yeah, they wanted to kill him, but they couldn't because of the treaty. So right. like, it was just this, this moment. And we, I guess we'll leave it to how accurate it is later on, whether or not this was the spirit illuminating it to me or not. But it was just this moment where, like I said, like this text suddenly became about Jesus in a fresh way that I hadn't seen before. And it was really exciting. It's almost like Jesus is the window into the scriptures. Exactly. So what are you affirming tonight? Well, I can't touch that. That's a great affirmation. That's basically <laughs> like the spirit opened my eyes possibly to some new expansive Easter egg style truth that I've yeah. never meditated on before. Yeah. How can I follow that? Uh, just a quick comment before you try to follow that. <laughs> because you said Easter egg. I have joined this Facebook group called Covenanters, and I jokingly posted a link to our podcast, and I found out that there are actually people in that group that listen to our show. So oh, all my yeah. jokes about Covenanters listening to the show, there's probably some Covenanters that listen to our show. Welcome, brothers and sisters. So when we say Easter eggs, we don't mean Easter eggs. We mean Easter eggs. Easter eggs. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Like the Marvel style Easter eggs, not the Easter eggs. Istar style Easter egg. Oh, is there another kind? I no. wasn't yeah. e- even no. aware. All right. So what okay. are you affirming? Mine is actually on the same lines as yours. In a sense, I want to affirm reading above your head. So I know yeah. like, there's nothing wrong with reading for entertainment or either reading because something is enjoyable or helps you relax, but we should sometimes just get that weak stuff out of there and read stuff that we really don't understand all that well, because yeah. I think that's the only way we grow. So this week, I've just been all about thinking about grabbing stuff that really challenges me. And one of the things I've read this week that was awesome is John Bunyan again, who, who knew he was more than just Pilgrim's Progress. Oh, man. Pretty much a lot of good stuff. Yeah. So he has something he wrote called Advice to Sufferers, which Mm -hmm. is really about persecution. Man, I think the the Puritonian way of describing that would be by saying it's banging. Yeah. Because it is so good. And uh, so I'm recommending. Sounds like something Edward would say. (laughs) It does, but only in like a monotone voice. Thy book be banging it. He never used any inflection. Exactly. But this is so good. And so my encouragement is this. Go read stuff that's like what you feel is above your ability. Wade through it. Wrestle through it. Read it multiple times. And especially with the Puritans, just go read it as the original. Get get into that like original language. Yeah. There's something beautiful about it. And I don't know about you, but have you ever been reading something, especially like some of the older Puritan stuff? And the first couple of paragraphs, you're like, man, I'm just like suffering, like slogging through this. And then all of a sudden it opens up and you get into this rhythm. Has that ever happened to you before? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that goes for any, any writer, but especially like when you're in another kind of linguistic context. Exactly. It takes a few, like a few chapters before you kind of catch the way that the writer is, is working. So just like knock out a concentrated half hour, 15 minutes read through this, some of the stuff, because I think part of the beauty is in the language. Like that turn of phrase gets you to think about concepts that are familiar to you in a totally different way. Cause you have to force yourself to understand what's being communicated. So yeah. read above your head. There's nothing wrong with that. In fact, it's an admirable goal. Yeah. One of my favorite accounts of John Bunyan, who I'm not super familiar with, but I listen to, I'm listening to a, I'm a Puritan podcast. That's like all about Puritans. And one of my favorite references is uh, he went to prison twice. One time was relatively yeah. short, and then one was very long. And the the judge actually came to him at one point and said, look, you've got a, a blind daughter and a family to feed, and you're suffering in prison, and I want to let you out, and all you got to do is tell me you're not going to preach again. 
And John Bunyan looks back at him and says something along the lines of, I have to be honest with you, sir. If you let me out this afternoon, I'll be preaching by this evening. (laughs) And he goes back to prison for like another two years. And it's like, what kind of men in our age have that kind of courage? I I wish that I had a a kernel of that kind of courage in the face of adversity. Me too. I I didn't know that until I was looking behind what he was writing here. And this is not just some kind of philosophical treatise. It's him writing from that exact place of being in prison. So he knows what's up. And this thing is just, like I said, banging. So get yourself some hard reading. So you got a denial this week or is life all just rainbows and butterflies? Uh, It's something. Uh, So I am denying my own grumbling. So this last week, uh, we got hit with like 20 inches of snow, uh, sort of by surprise and sort of not by surprise. So leading up to the storm, all of the storm predictors were saying this was going to be terrible. And then the day of the storm, they like backed way off. And so like, oh, it's only going to be about nine inches. And then, then it was like 19 inches and we all just got taken by surprise. And I woke up on Thursday morning and just was mad and complained about how much snow we got. And I'm denying my own grumbling because I didn't realize in that moment how blessed I actually am. So just on the surface, I got a day off work. I got to stay home and spend time with my wife and the dog that I I don't usually get. And I'm constantly saying I wish I had more of. Um, I got to enjoy kind of a, a, I don't want to say a miracle, but like God's works in nature. Like the snow is beautiful. It's beautiful. And what really hammered it home is um, there was a man who was driving to work and a snowplow lost control and hit his car and he died on the road. And so I'm at home complaining about the snow and this guy is dying and his family is losing a loved one. And so it it just kind of struck me as like, how small am I that I can find something to complain about when there's really nothing legitimate for me to complain about in that kind of situation? Well, I'm going to complain about something right now. Is my time. <laughs> Okay, let's do it. Do everything without What's, grumbling and complaining except denial. Except the denial. I feel like that is the biblical safe spot. Yeah. And I'll do it with some Thanksgiving on the end just to make sure I'm, I'm staying within. Conrad what, will appreciate that. Yeah, what Paul teaches us. What is up with big mugs that have tiny handles? <laughs> I don't know, man. It, a good mug is hard to find. Yeah, like a wife. So the thing that's crazy about this is I don't I have tiny girl like hands. Like no joke. I mean, you know, you see my ring it's size true. is like 7. It's true. They're so like little I have baby tiny hands. little like nimble fingers. And yet I'm surprised how many times you ever try to just go pick up a mug, you're drinking something hot, you want to use the handle, that's why it's there. And you've got to jam like three fingers into this <laughs> tiny little space and it's too heavy for you or maybe I'm just super weak, but Either way, can we just get some mugs with some man-sized handles? I want to be able to stick my whole hand, all my fingers, in the mug. I saw a mug one time that the handle was actually, like, built into the side of the mug. And so, like, you could slide your whole hand. It was like a pocket in the side of the mug. You could slide your whole hand in there. But the spot where you slid your hand was like extra insulated so you didn't burn your fingers off. Oh, okay. That's what I was wondering. But it was brilliant because it was like you put your whole hand inside the mug and then it was like just natural drinking. I just want a mug where I can feel comfortable. I stick my hand in. But that being said, I'm thankful for hot beverages. I'm thankful for the mugs that I own. I have a great mug that I'm using now that your wife gave to me, which is fantastic. So I I am thankful. But These aren't even like first world problems. These are like... (laughs) Top 20% of the first world problems. It's like top 1%. Like, yeah. I'm complaining that I have a hot beverage that I can't comfortably put my hand into the <laughs> handle, even though, you know, I've got, I, I'm sitting in a nice, comfortable place with a expensive microphone in front of me and yeah. I'm drinking coffee. Yeah. So this kind of leads into our topic for the night a little bit. <laughs> and it sounds like we're making light of it, but we're really not. We're not. We're not. Yeah. Nah. What are we talking about today? So we're approaching what is sometimes called the problem of evil. Boom. Gravity on. So the problem of evil, um, there's a couple different formulations it takes. There's what's called the logical problem of evil, which has pretty much been debunked. There's not any serious philosophical approaches that I know of that really think the logical problem of evil is, is a defeater for Christianity. And the logical problem of evil is more or less, if God is all good and he's all powerful, then why is there evil? Because if he was all good, 
he would stop it, so he must not be all-powerful. And if he's all-powerful and he doesn't stop it, then he must not be all-good. So those that's kind of the logical problem of evil. And the answer, just to kind of throw it out there, is, well, maybe God has a good reason for allowing evil. Right. So most philosophers, um, unless you're talking about, like, the people who think they're philosophers but are really, like, scientists, like Neil deGrasse Tyson or Lawrence Krauss or Richard Dawkins, people who have no philosophical training whatsoever, most actual philosophers and theologians recognize that that doesn't hold a lot of force because there's a lot of ways to overcome it. So I didn't want to spend a lot of time on the logical problem tonight, but I wanted to spend some more time kind of on what you might call the existential problem of evil or like the experiential problem of evil. And the question to ask is, what do we do as Christians with evil and how do we explain the presence of evil, particularly to people who are experiencing some sort of evil? Right. Because when I engage this issue, for me, it's like on three levels at least, but I would say like three levels that people gravitate to at various times in their life. So you kind of already started with one, which is there's a biblical theological problem. Right. What does the Bible teach on God's goodness and the reality of evil? And then how can we bring some coherence to both those things? There is a philosophical problem, and that is often where those who are outside the faith come and engage this issue. So questions like what is the relationship between creation, sovereignty, causation, freedom, moral responsibility? Right. You know, if God is good, why does evil exist, like you said? But I think where we always start, even if you don't have a mind that gravitates toward those other two or realizes that they are there, present or impounded in the way that you process information about evil and suffering, is we start with an emotional problem. Right. So whenever we watch the news and see yet another school shooting, we have this deep and profound revulsion that we feel toward pain. We have a sense of outrage, I think, almost universally yeah. when we feel, when we witness like a blatant atrocity or some kind of horrific suffering. So I think we have to engage in all three of those levels and we have to be able to express either apologetically or otherwise why it is that we can understand God is good and yet these things still exist beyond just saying what is cliche because it's cliche because it's true. But I think you're getting right to the root. When you sit across from somebody at a table who is going through something deep, what do you actually say to them? And sometimes you're just quiet, of course. Like we, right. I think we can just admit that, that sometimes the best thing to do is to be quiet or to cry with them, or just be with them. But beyond that, how do we as Christians, how should we really think about God and evil? Because this is the one thing in life you're not going to be able to escape. You may be able to escape like having to explain to somebody what, I don't know, like aseity is or superlapsarianism, but this is one thing you can't get away from. So we yeah. should kind of be equipped to talk about this. Yeah. So uh, the other thing that strikes me that's interesting about this situation that, that Christians often find themselves in is that particularly as reformed Christians, we're actually confronted by other Christians at times with pro- the problem of evil. And right. that's because of the way that Christian, that reformed Christians hold God's sovereignty to function is we're confronted with the fact that we affirm a sovereign God that all things that happen happen according to his will and that all things that happen were decreed to happen in eternity past. Yet we know, and we see that sin happens or evil happens. So sometimes an Arminian or an open theist, which in the long run, you know, long run are the same thing, but will come at us and say, well, (laughs) obviously, obviously your view of God must be wrong because your view makes God the origin of evil. You know, they may not use the word author because they know that we explicitly reject that term, but they'll say like your, your view makes it so God is the origin of all bad things. So I think as reformed Christians, in addition to sort of generally answering the problem of evil in terms of an apologetic approach, we have to be able to answer the problem of evil from an internal polemics approach of how do we answer the Arminian objector who's going to level that at us as well. So I'm glad you brought that up. Can we just get into that a little bit? Because I I read an article a little while ago. I think it was by a guy named Joe Rigney. Okay. And he had this really interesting perspective based on what you're talking about. And he basically makes the case that we should kind of use authorship in stories as a way to kind of understand that 
dichotomy that you were presenting, how God can be sovereign over things and not be the progenitor of evil. And so he basically makes this case to kind of paraphrase, like authors can literally get away with murder, right? Right. I mean, they can write it into their stories. So the question is, are authors guilty of the evil committed by their characters? So, I mean, they certainly are governing these worlds and characters they create down to every tiny little detail, but it would kind of be strange to accuse like J.K. Rowling of Voldemort's evil or the one who must not be named. And we don't <laughs> condemn uh, Tolkien because he put Sauron in Middle Earth. Right. So the treachery of Sauron doesn't defile, you know, Tolkien. He does not share like in the corruption of like the Nazgul's or is that what they're called? Uh, I don't know. Yeah, I guess. The Naz- as the Nazgul floods, whatever those things are. Yeah. So, but all of those things are under the author's sovereign direction and design. Like, have you ever thought about that before or in those terms? I have. And, and I think um, what I think is fascinating is you know, the, the classic Armenian response to that, because I've used that kind of example is, well, we're not talking about, we're not talking about real people in those situations, though, right? The fact that, spoiler alert, the fact that Voldemort tortures Harry Potter and, and kills him in a sense towards the end right. of the series, or that Snape kills Dumbledore, spoiler, um, that is not an issue because Snape isn't real and Dumbledore is not real and Harry Potter is not real. And my response to that is that that actually is um, that's actually a mistake in your theology proper, right? Because exactly. J.K. Rowling and Voldemort are closer to each other on the spectrum of existence than God is with his creatures. Exactly. And the reason I say that is because J.K. Rowling is a creature. She was created by God, who. Um, she came out of nothing at some point um, in the grand scheme of things. Obviously, J.K. Rowling wasn't like a de novo creation of God, but she she is dust and she will return to dust. And Voldemort is a creation. So both of those situations, it's true that Voldemort's not real or Harry Potter's not real in terms of having an ontological existence apart from the page. But when we when we look at it, the fact that God decides that some of us will undergo suffering either for positive reasons from our perspective or negative reasons for our perspective. We are God's creatures. He made us and he has whatever right to do with us, whatever he pleases. If he wanted to create an entire um, species of creatures that the only purpose they serve is to suffer in order to um, reveal something about the nature of God, that is within his prerogative to do. Right. So, exactly. So while it's true that Voldemort and Harry Potter and Sauron, all those all those fictional characters are not real, we make a mistake if we put ourselves in a position in relation to God that is somehow more more closely associated than J.K. Rowling is with Voldemort. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. I was that's exactly what I was thinking. I think it's kind of an adventure in missing the point right. if you just make the argument, well, they're not real. Those are fictional characters. So they're not really being hurt. That's not exactly I think the point that that Rigby is going for there, but I mean, maybe this is pushing it too far. Even if we look at like Psalm 139 where David says, you know, all the days are ordained for me were written in a book when as yet there were none of them. I still think this analogy of the author and his story helps us to understand how God can be completely, totally, exhaustively sovereign and how human beings can be responsible and how their choices and actions can be meaningful and significant. So there's all these layers of causality that I think when we have these kind of inner family discussions about the problem of evil that we fail to see. So going back to like Narnia, for example, why does Aslan have to die? Well, because Edmund was a traitor, but also why does Aslan have to die? Because that's how Lewis wrote it. Right. So there's these, all these layers. And when we take that and see if we find that in the scriptures by way of testing this kind of analogy, we see that in so many places, in Job, in lots of sufferers, but I find it most particularly in Joseph. So here's this guy who is sold by his jealous brothers who are just in a fit of wickedness and sin. He's falsely accused and spurned by a woman. He's punished by an angry ruler. And then we get to the kind of the end of Joseph's life, or at least the time where he's being reunited with his family. And his confession is like this banner over every evil action ever committed by anybody who's wicked or any other thing for that matter. Yeah. Because Genesis 50, 20 doesn't say, as for you, 
you wanted evil against me, but God wanted it for good. It says you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Not just like God used it for good or turned it around or redeemed it, but there's like a meaning impounded there that is remarkable to me. So I guess that's somewhat of like outside of just the general apologetic, but I think it's important to understand the starting point is like God is meaning something from this evil. Yeah, but he is at the same time not the progenitor of it, and that distinction—if if we get that jacked up—we're going to have our theology way off kilter. Yeah, and I think it, it's important for us to remember. Um, I actually don't remember if it was on this show or if it was a different show, but um, when we put God on the same continuum of causality as us, we have already missed the boat. Right. Right. So we have a we have a continuum of sovereignty. Right. And there's creaturely sovereignty. We have the freedom to do what we want to do. We have the freedom to choose whether we want Fruit Loops or Wheaties. We have the freedom to choose whether I take the direct route to work or whether I take the long route to work. We have the freedom to act within our own continuum of sovereignty. And then there's God. And God is on a totally different continuum. Right. So God's God's sovereignty does not, and this this is a strange way of saying it, but God's sovereignty does not impinge on our freedom. And that's where the Armenians get this wrong, is they right. put God's sovereignty and our sovereignty on the same continuum, and they paint it as though it's somehow some kind of tug of war between God's sovereignty and our sovereignty, where if, if we're going to have any level of sovereignty of our own affairs, then somehow God has to relinquish that sovereignty or we become a robot, right? Or we become puppets or any of the other strawman characteristics they they assign. But instead, and this is, you know, Bavink writes about this and he talks about how God's sovereignty actually establishes our sovereignty. And that's because he's created us in such a way where we have our own kind of creaturely sovereignty. And so when I choose to sin, God has caused me in a certain sense he has caused me to sin in that he has created me and foreordained and decreed all things that will come to pass right but he decreed that i would freely choose to sin and that's that's a little bit of a mind tweak there is is how can you talk about something that is free being decreed and that's where we have to punt to mystery is that we don't understand how god's sovereignty works in relation to creaturely sovereignty but we see in scripture that both of those things are. Right. And everybody, I guess what we're, we're kind of talking about is theodicy, right? I mean, exactly. this idea that the defense, I guess, of God's righteousness in light of the reality that evil exists in the universe that he created. And so where I see people kind of go astray, as I think the default kind of Christian evangelical position is to make free will supreme, like you're saying. Right. Yeah, so this exactly. is the idea of autonomous theodicy that's going to teach that the cause of evil is the abuse of creaturely free will. And right. it's going to have to begin with the assumption that God would never willingly ordain evil, decreeing a plan for his creation that unleashes so much misery into the universe. But here's what gets me, and we should just talk about this since we're already into it now. We're, we're in deep. I don't even know where this, this happened, but now I'm, I'm getting <laughs> warm. So what's amazing to me is the Bible does not teach that man is free to choose that which is right as opposed to that which is wrong. That's right. just not in the Bible. Yeah. So when people say something like this, to be human is to have choice. That is obviously a really pregnant statement. But I, I often want to ask, like, where do you get that from? Because yeah. that sounds more philosophical than it sounds biblical. Right. And even if we go back to the gardens, that like little probationary period, that ability to choose is in a totally different context with a totally different bias. There we have a perfect creation and the choice is really obedience or disobedience, but there's a bias, so to speak, built in of obedience. But after the fall, with our inherent sin nature, we have a a bias toward disobedience. So we can't even equate the two. Do you know what I mean? Like, is that fair? Yeah. And even in the context of the garden prior to the fall, if we I actually, this is one of the few things that I've heard Mike Horton say that I look at a little cross-eyed, is he'll say that Adam actually had libertarian free will. But the problem with libertarian free will is that it's internally incoherent, right? So libertarian free will basically says that a, a decision cannot be influenced by a prior cause. So each decision has to be able to be made irrespective of any prior cause. 
Just total independence. Total, almost arbitrary. And, and what this boils down to, at least as far as I understand it philosophically, is every decision ends up being an utterly arbitrary. Because yeah, it's like it, flipping a coin. Right. It, well, it's not even flipping a coin because that would be subject to laws of, of motion and, and things like that. But I mean, like the coin, the response of the coin is probabilistically independent of any previous flip. Sorry, that's what I meant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. So, and so what it results in is these utterly arbitrary decisions that um, when I go to decide what kind of food that I like, what kind of breakfast cereal I'd like to eat, if I'm inclined towards Fruit Loops versus Cocoa Puffs because I like fruit more than I like chocolate, which is not true, but if that were true, then that in itself has now become a non, in a strict sense, is not a libertarian decision anymore. And right. so even Adam, and this is where, like I said, I've said it before, systematic theology is, the science of systematic theology is in understanding the terms and lining up terms and not having obvious apparent contradictions. The art of systematic theology is often found in learning where to stash your mystery. And I don't mean stash like hide, but learning where to claim your mystery card. And how Adam, without any predisposition to sin, still sinned, is a mystery. It's a mystery, yeah. It might be the mystery of the Bible. I mean, obviously, like right. incarnation, the Trinity, those are the chief mysteries of the scriptures. But in terms of the, the events of history and anthropology, which is something we should be able to kind of get our heads around, that is an utter mystery. How did someone with no predisposition to sin, no nature that would incline him to sin, how how did he somehow sin? I have no idea. That is way above my pay grade. But it's true. We have to affirm that it's true. And we can't we can't postulate some sort of libertarian free will because then it makes sin arbitrary. Makes sin right. it makes it makes an effect with no cause, which is something that philosophically just can't stand unless you're Descartes. And you don't believe in causes, but we're not. I mean, nobody really acts. Nobody operates on those on those terms in our world. Right. Yeah, we're way out, we're way out there now. We are. I thought this was <laughs> going to be a practical episode, and and I'm just I'm busting out Descartes and causation. No, I, I, it's crazy. I love that you went. Well, let's continue further down that because one of the things I was thinking about as you were saying that is that. For me, when I think about evil, that's it's a moral category and not an ontological one. Right. In the sense that in many, well, I guess in all ways, evil is a derivative of good. It's just a misrepresentation or some kind of perverse form of it or right. a feature of it. But I probably wouldn't go as far as Augustine because I find his answer to that dilemma like a little bit inadequate. So, because he generally taught that evil is metaphysically unreal or evil is just the absence of something good. So I don't think it's quite that, but it is this problem. Like you're saying, that's both academic and everyday. So if you start to talk to somebody about this, it's going to go philosophical, right? I mean, how can it not? Because we got to understand what it even means in terms of definition. So I think what's been helpful to me in thinking about this, both as a Christian is that really this is kind of a misnomer because Christians don't have a problem of evil. I think they're the only ones that can understand it rightly and cogently. Atheists, antitheists, they have a problem with good because evil to the Christian just confirms the fact that we live in a world of real values. There's positive and there's negative. Yeah. And if the universe were just electrons, there would be no evil or suffering, right? I mean, th- the issue isn't whether we can expect tragedies to occur, but why they constitute a problem. I mean, would you agree with that? I would. And I think... Um... You know, this is one of those areas where presuppositional apologetics can be really helpful. Yes. But you have to understand what they're helpful for. So presuppositional apologetics kind of has two facets to it. Some apologetics serve to um, give an answer in order to convince. So I might might have an atheist who confronts me with something and I give an answer in attempt to convince them that my worldview is correct. That's one stage Van Til talked about kind of these two stages of apologetics. The, the answer that most Christians give, and especially presuppositional Christians give, is not really an answer that serves to convince the atheist. What it is, is it's an answer to stop the mouths of the atheist. Right. So when you're confronted by an atheist who says, well, how could God command in, in Joshua, the early chapters of Joshua, that 
all of the people of Jericho would be slaughtered. Men, women, children, animals, everybody would be slaughtered. Um, how could God con command that? That's just abject evil. Well, the presuppositional answer is often, and sometimes delivered flippantly, and it shouldn't be, but is often, well, evil doesn't even have a category in your worldview. Right. So how, how can you talk about evil when you deny the all of the prerequisite philosophical commitments for there to be an objective thing called evil or an objective thing called good. And, and what that does is it essentially serves to stop the mouth of the atheist and kind of, they're kind of coming on the assault, right? They're coming at God. Usually they're coming at you, but their real target is God. And they're trying to defame God's name. And what this apologetic does is it says, wait a second. You already are giving glory to God by acknowledging the categories that he require his existence is required for these categories to make any sense. Exactly. Now that is probably not going to cause an atheist to go, "Oh man, you're right. Jesus is real and to fall on their knees and worship the Lord." But what it does is it stops that assault. And there's value in that. But on the flip side, we have to know in some sense how to then move the ball forward. And say, okay, so now we have to be able to give a rational and a reasonable account for the rationality of evil within a context that God exists. Does that make sense Where we, why we have to go to that second step? Yeah, for sure. I, I agree with you. I think that it is helpful because you want to try to break down the presupposition. And sometimes we get carried away in this realm of talking about the issue by saying, well, if God exists, like you said, if God is good. If God right. is omniscient, we already know those things. So it's not really helpful, in my opinion, to rehearse all those details because it's it's already probably embedded in the conversation. But also, I just don't like trying to give up ground, like throw mud, right. because all you're doing is losing ground and making everybody else dirty, right? So I agree with you. We have to move from this argument that, well, you're saying that there's evil. Then what you're saying is there must be good, of course, distinguish between the two. And then there must be some kind of moral framework and there must be some, you're, you're positing by that there must be some kind of moral lawgiver. So now let's go to the moral lawgiver. Right. Let's talk about the connecting all those three dots. Is that kind of what you're talking about? Yeah. And so, you know, the first stage of this kind of two-stage presuppositional apologetic is to basically demonstrate in, in stronger or less strong terms that the, the worldview that the atheist is espousing is not consistent with the worldview that they're espousing. So right. in this case, they're affirming that there is something called evil and they're accusing God of evil. And so what you're doing is you're saying, well, hold on a second. You're, you're saying that there's something evil, but you can't account for that. And I have never encountered a situation where the atheist finally says, yeah, you're right. I can't account for evil. But then after you've made that step, then you step forward and you say, okay, so now that, we've, now that we've established that your worldview can't account for good and evil, let me tell you about my worldview and how it accounts for evil. Exactly. And that's where I think Christians, especially Reformed Christians, we need to be better at taking that second step. There are so many presuppositional apologetics guys out there that all they do is undercut the worldview of the person they're talking to. And they never take that step to actually present the worldview that we hold and demonstrate how it's more rational and makes more sense of the presuppositions we both hold. And that's kind of the core of presuppositional apologetic. Yeah, I like that. It's good. It's good to challenge and to push back, especially in kind of that atheist worldview. At least you're right that I don't, well, this is kind of the nature of debating with almost anybody that's entrenched in their viewpoint. And that is, they're unlikely to surrender right. in your presence in the midst of a conversation. But I think because a lot of times, writ large, an atheist is going to appeal to that which is physical as opposed to that which is metaphysical, to science right. primarily, when you push back on the categories, I think that is really helpful in pulling down some of the hurdles to being able then to go and talk about why your view is actually more consistent than the person who thinks, well, I have science on my side. And I have all this objective reality in front of me from which I'm going to use to buttress my opinion. So like a clear example, in my opinion would be genocide. Right. So it's interesting to me, and Lewis writes about this to some extent in, I think, Mere Christianity, but you know, genocide is a clear example of obviously a horrific evil. But if we live in a world where there's just a 
blind processes within a closed system, and that's the sole cause of our existence, then those events are not qualitatively different from a lion eating a gazelle or praying mantis eating its mate. I think they do that, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's simply what the universe does. It's doing what it's always done. So you can dislike that, but there's no grounds for that being a problem. Right. And so it's, that's why this is a bit of a misnomer. Is it, I don't think you and I see this per se. It's a problem in the sense that it's a deep and profound mystery. But in terms of being able to have a worldview that is cogent and consistent and applies to both reason and spirituality and faith and biblical principle, this is super consistent. I mean, this is right on point. So we still have to struggle with why perhaps God allows this evil. But when we pair that up with something about God's character and about what he wants for us as his children, then the pieces start to come into play if only they satisfy us intellectually and give us a firm reason to trust him in faith. And that's where I think we've got to express that well to somebody who's coming at God. Because the odd thing is, if you're going to come at God, you're kind of positing God and you're positing a moral being, then that's the only way that you can have both good and evil. Um, But I mean, when when you're talking to people and you're thinking through how to explain that worldview, what kind of scriptures come to your mind that are helpful to you, either like in in your form of personal faith and devotion to God for when you see evil or experience evil or suffering? Yeah. And I think, I think that kind of turns the corner for us a little bit to where, where I think we want to wrap up the episode is we have to understand now, yes, we can approach the, the problem of evil from this philosophical point and we can account for things on a technical level. But we are all faced daily with the presence of evil, and we need to be able to deal with it, for lack of a better way. We, we need to be able to get through the day, right? right. And, and maybe it's something as kind of minuscule as, like, I wake up sore a lot of days because I sleep weird, because I've got a dog in the bed that wants to use the whole bed, and so I sleep all twisted in my back. And so that's a minor thing, but, like, it still stinks to wake up in the morning with a sore back and go to bed at night with a sore back. Or we have more significant things like Thursday morning, someone's husband, brother, father, son, somebody left for work and never came home. And that's, I mean, those two things are, they seem like they're on as far opposite ends of the the spectrum as they can get. But on the grand scheme of things, they're both on the same spectrum. They're both forms of evil. And so for me, it's it's really helpful when I go to the scriptures to look at passages um, like Luke 13, when um, I think it's Luke 13, where he's talking about the, yeah, Luke 13, the first part of the chapter, he's talking about the Tower of Siloam. And Jesus is um, confronted by some people who want to talk to him about these two really terrible situations where some Galileans were killed and Pilate mixed their blood with sacrifices. So he defiled their blood, which would have been in our minds, it's probably like, yeah, what's the big deal? But in the early first century, that would have been a huge deal. That would have been like eternal consequence kind of thing. And then also this other situation where this tower fell and killed 18 people. And Jesus's answer is not, well, they were worse sinners. He actually says, no, do you think that you're less of a sinner than them? And he pushes it towards repentance. And so for me, evil serves the function in our world of driving the elect to repentance. And for me, that's always something that's really helpful. So just like I hear about this, this poor guy who gets killed driving to work on Thursday morning, it could, it could have been me, right? I drive that same stretch probably about the same time he was going every day. And instead of um, grumbling and complaining about my snow day, I should be driven to say that could have been me. What, what opportunities have I squandered? What a um, what a unprofitable servant I've been, and to seek to repent and to seek God more. So for me, those verses that help us understand the magnitude of evil, and also that God uses evil sinlessly to drive us to repentance for our own good, those have been really helpful for me on a kind of practical piety level to drive me to the right attitude towards evil. That's solid. I don't think I don't often think about repentance when I my gut reaction when I experience evil, but that's solid. Yeah. What about you? What do you think? You know, I think that this is one of those subjects where sometimes the best instruction we take first from the Bible is not the instruction we should take second. And what I mean by that is 
when we're encountering people with encountering people with real exposure to evil, real suffering, that we got to do what the Bible says, and that is come us alongside them in love and with the gospel, and yeah. weep with them, and grieve with them, and suffer with them, and that should be normative and default before we even start to have conversations about what it means. Because otherwise, I, th- I fear that we just come off really trite and cliche, even among our yeah. brothers and sisters. I mean, how many people? How many times have you heard somebody say who's lost a loved one or is, or is going through cancer? that they just can't take people saying the cliche things to them over and over again. Yeah. Um, sometimes we got to just get into that Job vibe and sit down with somebody and just be with them. And beyond that, I think the next level of instruction that I, I run to is passages like Isaiah 46 and Ephesians 1, where we get the firm sense that God has everything in control. And he goes way out of his way to remind us of that. So uh, Isaiah 46, 9 and 10 Remember the former things long past, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things that have not been done, saying, my purpose will be established, and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. So when we are confronted, or I'm confronted with somebody saying, you know, where was God in this high school shooting? Could he not have prevented that tragedy? What the Bible says to us is that God could have done more than prevented the evil tragedy. What he's doing is, of course, working all of this stuff. And his thoughts are so much higher than ours. His ways are so much higher than ours. And that's cliche, but it's cliche because it's true. And the scripture is trying to inform us with something that gives us comfort, that though we do not understand, that we need to push forward in trust. Yeah. And that, you know, in my own life, whenever we're experiencing like the, the pain of suffering or exposure to evil, I'm just reminded that there is a special place for the sick and the hurting, that the, the physician wants to attend sweetly to those who are in that place. Yeah. And so there is something beautiful that God does in brokenness. There's something that he provides in strength and loving kindness that is not the experience of the person who is not going through the valley. And so in some ways, how bad can these things be if they drive us to our knees in repentance? If they cause us to fall on our face, if we cry out to God, as Peter said, we have nobody but you, Lord. Yeah. How bad can they be? And so I think part of this is we need to change our perspective. Use these verses in the scripture to help us understand that the evil is temporal. It should strive. We should strive to really seek after God and to put him first and to make the gospel profound in our lives. And I, maybe I'll come back to like repentance. What you said. I just did a full circle. It's, now it's back to just. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we should go to repentance. Yeah. But I mean, we struggle with this, right? I mean, this is, it's, it's a hard thing to sit across the kitchen table from somebody who's really going through something hard and to not make it sound like, well, you just got to have faith. Or, yeah. or you know, have you ever heard this thing where somebody has a loved one who is dying from a horrible disease? And you're waging war in prayer, essentially, laboring in prayer for this person to be healed. And they die. And then people are prone to say something like, well, the Lord, you know, the Lord did answer our prayer. He healed them. Like, that's not what you're looking for. Yeah. That's not exactly what you were asking for. So what do we do with those really difficult times? Yeah. And I think um, I have two thoughts. One of them is super Bible nerdy. So I'm going to go with that first and then I'll loop back to, to your question. Um, there is this uh, principle of interpre- interpretation called uh, Gezira Shiva, which is a, I don't know what it means, but it's a Hebrew phrase. And the method is basically you take two passages that have the same phrase in them and you compare them to each other to see what kind of insights come, come from them. So the, the classic example is there's a passage in Daniel that talks about the Son of Man. And then there's um, the Valley of Dry Bones in Ezekiel, where the Son of Man is the figure who's prophesying. So you take those and you compare them to each other. And I didn't intend this, but I'm reading the other verse that I had pulled up. Um, the other one that I go to is John 9, right? The account of the blind man. Okay. And I, I normally, I don't read past this when I'm talking about this, but verse 7 says, He said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is the same town Right, referenced yeah. by Jesus in Luke 13, where the tower fell. So now, obviously, like the Holy Spirit inspired both scripture, scripture and God decrees history. So we're not saying like that 
this name was used here. But that word, I'll have to investigate this more, but that word ties these passages together in a sense. And thematically, they're teaching similar things. And so we have to see that across Scripture, there's a consistent teaching about God's purposes in evil. That he doesn't always, evil is not always the result of sin. It's not always, it's always in the long run, the result of sin, but it's not always immediately the result of sin. So it's, it's not, sometimes it is, right? Sometimes you do something sinful. I mean, Ananias and Sapphira, they lied to the Holy Spirit and God knocked them dead, right? It is explicit in the text that he killed them for their sin, right? Achan, there's all sorts of examples of that in scripture. But more often than not, the only thing that we can see is that there's evil and there's sinners. But those two things don't always have that kind of one-to-one correlation that we're looking for. So just, I I hate to even have to say it, but every time there's some kind of tragedy out there, whether it's a school shooting or a natural tragedy or something, some idiot gets on Facebook right away and points out that the people who were killed are sinners. And that idiot never stops to think about the fact that he's a sinner and he deserves to be killed too. But what your what your last question uh, made me think about is in the midst of tragedy is not the right time to be teaching someone about God's providence. For sure. Right? The doctrine of providence is sweet, sweet medicine for the soul in the midst of tragedy, but it's not the kind of medicine that you can apply to the top the top of a wound, right? It's it's the soil that assurance grows in so so when we're talking about our kids or ourselves or our friends or our families or our our people at our church we have to prepare them for tragedy by teaching them about the doctrine of providence while things are good right it's not um it's not a band-aid that you can apply to a tragedy to make someone feel better it has to be the foundation of their understanding of how God operates in the world. And in that moment, rather than them looking at this and saying, God, why would you do this to me? If they're grounded and rooted in the doctrine of providence, as the Reformed Confessions teach, they're not going to say, God, why did you do this to me? They might say something more along the lines of, God, what are you doing in this? And I think that's the key. And as Reformed Christians, when we encounter tragedy, we need to ask that question. I mean, it's hard when you're the one that's suffering from evil to not ask, why are you doing this to me? And Job is never rebuked for asking that question. He's rebuked for a lot of things in the book. I think sometimes people think Job gets out of the the book of Job as as a completely innocent man who's not convicted of sin. That's that's not the case. God has some very severe words to say for Job, and he has some very severe words to say for Job through um, Elihu at the end. But he's never chastised for asking why did this happen to him, because there's no explanation for it. There's no answer for it. There's nothing he can point at to, to explain it. But as Reformed Christians, we have to move past why did this happen to me to look for God's providence and what he's doing in the tragedy. Because we know and we confess from Scripture that God works all things for the good of those who he has called and who he loves. And all of those things are for our good and for our salvation. So we should always be able to look to suffering and look to tragedy and be able to, even if we can't always see it, we should always be able to confess that we know that God's hand is in it for our benefit. Right. And I liked what you said about being prepared. That's, I think, tremendous. Because to borrow from you know, parable of Jesus. If you're trying to build your life on that rock as opposed to the sand, you can't build the foundation in the storm. It's right. impossible. Nobody can actually physically put together a home in kind of very inclement weather. Right. So the idea is that we would be prepared and be, I think part of what Peter says about being able to give an account is both in our intellectual understanding and apologetic expression of the scriptures, but also in how we live. Like that right, right. thinking should translate into right living. And that means that even in the worst of times, that we are the best of Christians. Because when you squeeze an orange, you get orange juice. You're right. always going to know what you really are under pressure. Yeah. And while it's okay to cry out to God as David does in like just pure honesty, you can tell, I think, that he's crying out to God in that way because here's a man who knows God. 
who yeah. knows his character. Yeah. And so even though he experiences this suffering, it's not a woe is me, God, why have you done this to me? So much as it is, God, what are you teaching me? What is it yeah. that you have for me to learn? Even if that is only that, you know, my strength or is nothing and that his strength is made perfect in my weakness. Like very few of us can understand that scripture experientially until God does something to challenge us. Because if we always had our way, we would never know what it was to follow God. I think I've said that before. And so I think a lot of times I see evil as the way that God, in fact, allows that to happen. And to your point, even if we're not experiencing it in our own lives, we need only go into Facebook or pick up any kind of newspaper or talk to our coworkers and we're going to be knee deep in it. And so we, we really need to be, we shouldn't run from this. We need to be well versed in it. Yeah, um, I mean, one of the books that has been tremendously helpful to me is uh, All Things for Good. Who is that by? Is that, um, I can't remember. You know what I'm talking about? I don't. The Puritan piece, All Things for Good. It's awesome. Again, just find it. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just say it's, Thomas Watson. I, I don't know. Yeah, Probably I, think, not it is, Tom, is I it? think it is. I'm going to look it up right now. I think it is uh, Thomas Watson. But um, we just need to be prepared. And yeah. it is Thomas Watson. It is. Yeah, that was brilliant. Good guessing read for all, the win. Read all things for good, Thomas Watson. Because I think what we need to do is take these verses, some of which like we've spoken about in kind of a roundabout way, and we need to spend serious time meditating on them. And this is one of those good books that takes yeah. that verse in the proper context and understands all things for good is not like everybody gets ponies and Ferraris when they become a Christian. Yeah. That this verse is actually for those who are going to suffer. And and sometimes we'll suffer for righteousness sake. Like even Bunyan, I was reading this week, he did something I've never heard before. He separates out what it means to suffer for righteousness and to suffer for righteousness sake as two separate things. Yeah, And it's mind blowing. So you're right. We got to get after understanding how are we going to deal with suffering? And there's lots of good resources out there. I don't know if you have any that you would recommend that you like in this kind of vein. Um. You know, I haven't read as much on the subject as um, I probably would like, but I mean, um, John Bunyan's work that you referenced earlier is is really key. Um, I haven't read the Watson book, but uh, Watson, it's pretty much awesome in anything he writes. Um, and, and I mean, just really immersing yourself. For me, in my own personal life, theory always comes before practice. For some people, they right. have to understand practice and then they they develop theory in light of the way that practice flows out. But for me, it's always theory first. So for me, it really is about really understanding the sovereignty and providence of God. Um, and there's also, I mean, there's a, a million good resources on that um, in the Reformed, the Reformed. I think the Reformed, I don't want to say they have a monopoly on this, but I think the Reformed really do have... Super strong. Yeah, it's it's a strong feature of our theology that we can account for this. And we can really look to God in a way that a lot of other theologies can't. Um, you know, I joked about the theme song that the Remonstrance podcast uses where it's no matter how steep, no matter how hard your hand will hold me there unless I choose to let go. But the, the Reformed affirm that no matter how difficult the situations, not only is God never going to let us go, right? He's like the Rickroll guy. He's never going to let us go. He's never going to let us down. But he also is not surprised by those. He knew they were coming and he planned them for our good. Right. And that, that's a step further than even the, the Arminians who want to affirm that God holds on to us can go. Um, it's not like evil on the Arminian schema surprises him, but he doesn't, he doesn't decree it or ordain it in the same way that the Reformed do. So there's a wealth of resources in the Reformed tradition um, that, that one could turn to, but um, I think that the resources you recommended were really good. And I think we got to go there because I would actually caution, I would think against anybody who thinks that they kind of can learn this in practice or will deal with it when it comes. Exactly. We're talking about a level of interacting with emotional, physical, spiritual trauma, really, that we do not want to be underprepared when yeah. that time comes. Yeah. Because I, I've seen in my own life and others, it's an it's a experience of pain and frustration and disappointment that I think we feel like we can mostly be able to handle. But when you, you know, if you've listened to this and you've experienced real evil, real trial, real pain, it'll rock your world. Yeah. 
And so we need to have that foundation. And you're right. I think going into theology proper is the best place to start. Because what we're saying is God may ordain that evil exists because the existence of eagle, eagle, evil (laughs) serves some greater good that God has in view. That statement is so dense and so packed. If we cannot come to full terms in support of those words, then we are really going to be in trouble when suffering comes. I think actually what happens is when we're not prepared for suffering, we're not prepared for evil, and we experience in our lives in a profound way, what actually happens is we have to go back and start to build our theology before we can even begin to muddle through that process. That's been my experience. Yeah, and if you have to build your theology in the midst of tragedy like that, it's probably not going to come out straight. No, that's what I'm saying is you're actually going to find that your emotions and your disappointment and the psychotic process of trying to deal with that weight is going to have such an influence on you that you didn't even ever intend it to have. Yeah. That it may be, in other words, I think it's like this. It may be hard to think straight. Yeah. when, When you're in the midst of really serious evil. And so we just need to best be prepared. And, and for, fortunately, God has given us so much preparation in his word, but we got to like metabolize that and memorize that and really meditate on it. And so I would encourage people to get out good resources, talk to people that are more qualified than you and I about suffering, who either experienced serious suffering or suffered for righteousness sake or your pastor or your elders. Yeah. But I would encourage everybody to get after it because it's coming for all of us at some point. Yeah, and I'll I'll say this and then we'll close is if you listen to like first responders at the scene of a tragedy like a like a car accident or some sort of, you know, mass casualty situation something really common that they say is well my training just took over. Yeah, exactly. Right? They don't have to think, they don't have to deliberate about what the right course of action is. They have just trained it and drilled it so much that they don't even have to really think it's all muscle memory at that point and i think as christians theologically on almost every area we should get to the point where we can say that when we're confronted by something whether it's the presence of evil in our life or the objection of an atheist or the accusation of a heretic we should be able to just step back and say well i don't know how to explain it but my training just took over right and the doctrine of providence and the the existence of evil has to be one of those areas where your training just takes over because it, it, I've never thought I would quote Mike Tyson on this program, but <laughs> Mike Tyson is is famous because he said, everyone has a plan until you get hit. Yeah. Until the first punch. Right. Yeah. And the problem is that unless your body can take over when you no longer can think in a, a fight of some sort, um, you're just going to, you lose it. You lose your plan. You don't have a plan and then you lose. And it, theologically it can be the same thing. It's that unless you are so, grounded on certain basic doctrines and i don't mean basic like easy to understand but basic as in foundational doctrines um doctrines of the trinity the hypostatic union what salvation is and how god's providence works in the world you're going to just lose it when you're confronted with something so let's all go to the scriptures let's go to our uh the resources that god has provided through his church and all these great systematic theologians and historical theologians we have and let's make sure we get to a point where we can say our training just took over. Amen. I love that. And I think part of that should be, if you're listening to this and it's been valuable or meaningful to you, would you pass the episode on to somebody else yeah. and talk about it a little bit, unpack it? But we love to hear when people are sharing in the conversation. So you can send us an email at reformbrotherhood at gmail.com. And you can also leave us a voicemail. We're still taking questions and like to do questions on a monthly basis. And that number is 607-444-2767. Yes. And if you would like to support the show, um, we've said it before that we we think we're providing good quality content and we've had people tell us they want to support the show. We don't have a lot of costs, but there is some things. Um, you can send us uh, your contributions uh, at PayPal or formbrotherhood at gmail.com. Or we do have a Patreon account set up if you want to set up like a monthly gift uh, it's uh, just patre- patreon.com slash reform brotherhood. Um, and we would, we would be humbled and honored to, to take your contribution. And um, like I said, we want to continue to make just quality that edifies and, and encourages the church um, in, the, in the small way that we can through this show. 
That's our heart. And either this podcast is so incredible because it's united Bunyan, Descartes, and Tyson, or it's so <laughs> awful because it's united Bunyan, Descartes, and Tyson. Yeah, I feel like Descartes would say something like, well, you can't really prove that the concussion was caused by getting punched in the head by Mike Tyson. <laughs> it just appeared that way. I mean, you got punched and then you had a concussion, but you can't really know what caused it. This is a whole new level. I love that we are superimposing interpretive thought <laughs> on Descartes in a boxing situation. All right. Well, I think that just about does it. Until next oh, week. Oh, yeah. It definitely does it. It does it. Until next week. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Uh, what if I'm fine?